Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with trumpet player Christian Steenstrup, who has been a professor at the Royal Academy of Music in Aarhus, Denmark since 2000, is a sought-after educator for workshops and masterclasses around the world, and the author of two books specifically for brass players. Christian was recently the first author on a study of 50 trumpet players, which compared the effect of singing, mental imagery, and physical practice on the learning process, and led to some intriguing findings that could be applied to all musicians, not just brass players. I wanted to learn more about what he and his colleagues found and find out how we can turn these findings into practical strategies that could be used in our daily practice. Christian comes through with an interesting four-step learning process that he feels has been helpful in his own learning as well as that of his students. I hope you enjoy the episode and find the four-step process helpful as well. I think we've all studied with teachers who at one point or another asked us to sing during a lesson. I don't remember personally if anyone ever explained to me exactly why they wanted me to do that but you were recently the lead author of a study that explored why this really might be a valid and worthwhile exercise to do and how it could benefit one's learning and translate that into audibly detectable changes in one's playing and so i wanted to definitely explore that and get into those details but i thought first it might be useful to take a couple steps backwards uh, because you studied with Arnold Jacobs for a time, and he was someone who took this idea much further, I think, than most, especially for that time, and really integrated it into a core part of his teaching and pedagogy. And so I wondered if maybe a good place to start would be if you could just tell us a little more about Jacobs' teaching and the role that singing played in his ideas about how to play a brass instrument more effectively. Yes, uh, for the previous century we were in, I think Arnold Jacobs was one of the greatest pedagogues, and, and I was so lucky to study with him in the late 80s and until he died in 98. And uh, one of the things that make him special, I think, was his fantastic knowledge about human physiology, but also how does the brain communicate to this physiology, and how do you think as a musician in order to control this complex machine that the human body is. 
And uh, one of his ideas was to always to keep it simple. So you always communicate without getting into a lot of analysis about how the body works, even though that he knew a lot about how the body works. But you communicate in a simple way. And his analogy was that when, when you're singing, you're basically from the brain, from auditory cortex in the brain, where we experience sounds. Um, we are sending a signal to the vocal cords to give them the right tension for each uh, note so that they basically buzz uh, the right pitch, which is being amplified through the mouth cavity and becomes a singing voice. And his idea was that we have to do a similar thing when we play a brass instrument so that instead of sending the signal to the vocal cords, the brain is using the facial nerve and is providing different kind of muscle contractions to the lips so that they will bust whatever note it is that we are trying to have. For me, that made a, a huge difference because as a brass player in those days, there were people who were talking about singing and so on, but it was a little bit esoteric, a little bit too spiritual. And this gave me an understanding that that's actually probably very close to what we are doing physiologically uh, when we play, that when we are functioning well, we are hearing, we are conceiving the note we want to play, and then lower levels of the brain, or uh, you might say other levels of the brain at least, is making that happen without our thinking so much about uh, why. I guess I'm curious, and it's been many years, I'm assuming, but do you remember how your playing changed when you started learning about this or approaching playing this way? Maybe even things from changes to how you prepared and practiced or what you thought about in the practice room or the way that your thought process may have even shifted during performance on stage? Yes. Um, it was very much before that I tended to play a lot by feel, always asking a question to the muscles. How, how are the lips feeling? Is this okay? Is, this suppo is that the right embouchure I'm using and so on? And uh, that was a lot of inward communication. You might even say internal focus of attention. And once I started to think about issuing the statement, which is thinking what Jacobs called the song in the head, that's an outgoing message where you are telling basically the lips uh, what you want to do, not how they feel. And by doing that, as a trumpet player or any brass player where you are playing with departure. So the same fingering can basically give you many different notes. That's why we are missing notes sometimes. And this is very different from a clarinet or, or from a piano, of course, where you have a different finger configuration for every note. So uh, we have these many notes we can choose among if we try to just go by what the fingers are doing. So we need to be able to have a fine control of the lips ability to bust the correct pitch when we are playing because the trumpet just amplifies what we put into it. So immediately when I started to get more involved in thinking about singing when I played, I recognized that I was missing fewer notes and also this feeling of being more connected with the music. Can you say more about the feeling more connected to the music? What do you mean by that? That when I'm playing, I'm actually involved in conceiving, hearing the music that I'm going to play, uh, and not so much the mechanical configurations you need to do in, in order to play. So it sounds like you're maybe more present, more in the moment, and yes. maybe more focused on what you want as opposed to kind of critiquing or analyzing as yes. it's coming out. Yeah. 
I wonder if some of this is, I mean, one, the first thing I remember hearing when I started talking to brass players is that one of the challenges, of course, is unlike a pianist or a string player, a lot of the moving parts of playing your instrument are not visible to exactly. you or anybody else for that matter. Yeah. I mean, is that partly maybe where Jacob started coming to this realization? Yeah, that's absolutely one of the important factors in this that we cannot see what the student is doing and when we are playing ourselves and so on a lot of it even if we look in a mirror most of what is happening we cannot really see and then we tend to get into the feeling trying to feel what are the muscles doing and so on and even that is a bit superficial or quite unpredictable we don't get the full picture of what's going on so it's hard to go by it's hard to trust i'm assuming there would probably be some variation from person to person too perhaps yes and there's also variation from people different times in their lives we sometimes we tend to be more sensory sometimes we tend to be very sensitive to the feel and other times we don't think so much about that but we allow to think more about the music and so on so it, it's something that fluctuates a lot i'm curious Again, some of these questions might be super obvious for brass players. But, you know, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. a string player. I don't yeah. have a concept for it. I mean, does feel play some role at some point? Because I guess what I'm wondering about is, and of course, you're very familiar with Gabrielle Wolf's research on yes. you know, distal versus internal and, and so yeah. forth, yeah. focus of attention when learning and performing. And, and one of the questions that I often get or kind of think of myself sometimes is, you know, how this intersects with students at different levels of of learning and familiarity yeah. with their instrument and ability to play and so forth and yeah. so yeah i wonder if you could speak a little bit to hey i mean are there times where focusing on feel really is kind of an important factor and b i mean you mentioned that arnold jacobs obviously did know a huge amount about the mechanics of yes. playing a brass yeah. instrument and so like where does where does that come into the equation? Like, when is it useful or important to focus on really understanding intricate mechanics of the craft of playing your instrument? And when is it not so important or, or counterproductive and yes. so forth? Yeah, you were just mentioning Gabrielle Wolf and her research into internal and external focus of attention. And after having gone through, I think she did a meta study also where she analyzed a lot of other studies in, in this particular aspect. And it always come, almost always comes out that the external focus of attention, which is thinking about uh, the effect of what we're doing for us, it would be the sound in the room, the music in the hall, for brass player, wind player, it could even be where's the wind that we send out, where's that landing in the room, and trying to get away from the internal focus of attention where we where we think about our body, or you could also say where we think about ourselves. And her research shows that the external focus of attention seems to be the one that is producing the best results, not even technically, but also musically. So, so I have been wondering... As you ask, are there some places where internal focus of attention is good? And I think when we are changing technique, you might say, the teacher would say, you need to change something, some aspects of what you are playing. You might have a, a short time, I would say, where you might observe what are you doing in order to be able to change it. But I think the task as a teacher is to quickly try to change that to be more and more external, be more and more focused on the music and less about 
is a technique or how the muscles feel and so on. I reread your book recently, trying to prepare for this sure. opportunity to chat with you. And yeah. one of the takeaways that I think I got from the book, if I understood it correctly, is that when we're attuned to how things feel in our body, we might think something is happening that actually isn't happening. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if if I understood that correctly, and if you could maybe speak to a little bit of that, because I understand that breathing is something that you're very familiar with and sure. and teach a lot and focus on and yeah and maybe how that relates to this as well in terms of maybe misunderstanding what we think is happening and, and our focus being in in a not so helpful place yeah so that's a bit older it's about 20 years ago i wrote this and um one of the things that i was doing there was going from anna jacobs teaching a lot because at that time there was not so much research as we have today and it's correct that when we are as a wind player and we need to at some point work with breathing and that of course involves a lot of breathing muscles and so on but the sensory feedback from the breathing muscles is very low so if you take let's say you if we think of all the breathing muscles in the upper torso and what feedback they give to sensory levels of the brain it would be something equivalent to half of a thumb or half of a finger or something. So as a violin player, as you are, you get a tremendous precise feedback from your fingers that you can relate to. But for, for wind players, that's much harder simply because we don't have much of a sense of feedback. So that's where when we work with breathing, we try to get a bit more sensitivity into it by the result of what we're doing with the breathing. So we try to think about the wind, wind in movement, and not so much which muscles are going to do that. So there will be basically breathing out muscles that are compressing the lungs, and because of that is moving the air out of the lungs, but they're quite hard to control since we can't feel them so well. But if we think of wind and movement, basically we need faster air for higher notes and slower air for low notes and so on. And we are sending that air into the room, which will be external focus of attention. That is a better way to control than trying to control the muscles. So even in the earlier stages of learning how to do this, is there more of a tendency to focus on the external or the, the movement of air as opposed to what am I exactly doing that produces that yes. result? So most, uh, if you're teaching children, for instance, you can always get them to blow on a piece of paper or you can, they can experience if you blow on their hand, they can experience what are you doing with the air. And then they try to imitate that and they try to focus on that. And immediately a lot of natural things start to happen. Whereas if I try to say, okay, you must uh, blow from, uh, you must do this with the diaphragm or you must do this with abdominal muscles, Lots of times people don't even know where those muscles are and they're hard to relate to because the diaphragm, for instance, is a muscle that we can't really feel and, and we have very little conscious control over it. So it's again, we think about the effect of what we want. We want the air to move a with a certain velocity. And as we are doing that, a lot of these things happen physiologically or traumatically. I think you and I have probably at some point chatted about the inner game of tennis book. Yes. Um, do you know if Arnold Jacobs ever read that? Himself? I think he did. Yes. Uh, did I think he did. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, uh, I, as far as I remember, it's written in the seventies or something like that, yeah. where he talks about self one and self two. 
And it's interesting because our self one wants to be in control of a lot of things, but self two, the body, or you might say the procedural learning, the automatic learning knows already how to do those things. And what self one just needs to do basically is issue simple statements. And that's where Jacob Arnold Jacobs, he talked about two things you need to think about when playing a brass instrument is one, the song, uh, as we talked about before, that you mentally are hearing the, the music that you're going to play, which he would call a song in your head. And then the wind, which is air and movement that is uh, going into the hall. And while you are concentrating on those two simple things, a lot of the underlying mechanisms, or you might say the, the under the hood of the car, will uh, happen automatically. You know, those two things sound a lot like something that Debbie Cruz at Arizona State found in some research that she did a number of years ago, where mm -hmm. the more effective golfers or putters in her particular study said that they were focused really just on two things when putting. One was kind of a visual target of exactly where they wanted the ball to go. And the second thing being a general feel, not what are my wrists doing, what are my shoulders doing, what are my knees doing, but just a general physical feel of a smooth, easy, successful putt. Whereas the less successful putters were much more focused on a lot of micromanaging of technical details and self-coaching. The best putters tended to keep it simple, like you said, basically yeah. in those two same exact ways. Yeah. I would love to ask you a little bit more about the song part in terms of what exactly, like if we were psychic and could read Arnold Jacobs' mind when he was performing and just kind of hear or see what's happening in there, it, and maybe it doesn't matter, but I'm curious, you know, is it a vocal sound? Is it a uh, an actual instrumental sound? Is it hearing the orchestral part around you, a combination of those things? Does it depend maybe on the excerpt or stage of learning? Uh, I think that's very individual, what people tend to like to use. For some players, they are very clear about hearing your particular the instrument, your own instrument, playing the music optimally. So that could either be imitating somebody who plays fantastic and you hear that sound in your head. For others, it's more like their own voice. So they imagine they are singing, they might even sing the part first. And then when they play afterwards, they're still mentally hearing their own voice while they're actually playing the instrument. So I think it's individual what triggers for each person. I just think it's important that we have some kind of oral picture, some kind of idea about how we want to sound or, or being involved mentally about the music and not so much the mechanics. Have you run into people who struggle to create that concept of sound internally and, and seem to have like a fuzzy or vague notion that they have trouble staying there? Yeah, uh, all the time myself <laughs> and uh, uh, many times the students, of course, because it's again, it's a mental thing. It it's, seems a little bit flaky, something that I thought you can be thinking about something the next moment you can be thinking about something else. So how can you keep that focus on, on just hearing what you want to sound like? So it's a challenge and it's something comes and goes and so on. But I think, again, uh, the more we can get the students involved in, in focusing on that, I think the better they usually play. Is this where I mean, just simply sitting and, and practicing conceptualizing a sound or, or does listening to recordings of other people come into the 
picture or you know how does yes. one clarify yes, I, that internal concept yeah i think a, a great way of learning uh, how we want to sound of course is listening to a lot of great music and great players singers i like to uh, listen to and imitate them when i play and i know my teacher so uh, jacobs was always talking about that uh, try to imitate a soprano and so on so, so i think it's very important and um, i often get surprised how little music the young generation knows where it's don't you listen it's never been easier to listen to a lot of recordings on youtube and so on and so basically the more we know about music the more great performance we have heard and can imitate that that's a start and then when we play try to sound like something that's going on in our head whether it's imitating somebody or it's uh, uh, imagining that we play great ourselves or, or something like that So it sounds like it doesn't even have to be other brass players or trumpet no. players. It could, could be anything. The other thing I'm kind of curious about, and I might be overthinking this at this point a little bit, <laughs> but obviously the concept of sound that you're going to be able to get from a live performance versus a YouTube recording or an older recording where the microphone technology just wasn't where it is today, it's going to be different. So I'm assuming that it's not just the quality of the sound itself that you're listening for, but other ingredients as well, perhaps, that you're trying to internalize? Yes. Um, I mean, when we think of of music, there's a lot of things, but one thing is pitch and rhythm, very important. Often we find that if I ask a student to sing some things that we are playing, especially if it's complicated French music or whatever, it can be hard just to have the pitch and the rhythm right. So that's where I would start. And then you need to have a certain timbre or sound. And there are so many ways you can sound, so many players with different ideas of what a beautiful sound is. And you can talk about vibrato. You can you have the whole thing about dynamics. And so, so there are many layers of of what great music is. And I don't think it's a problem that we analyze a bit and say, what well, what's going on here? Why are we getting moved by this singer at this particular point in the music? Is that the vibrato or is it something they do with the tim timbre or is it because they make a little ritardando or is it all of it? And there's so much information to get from great musicians who have performed all kinds of music. And I think that's it's so fascinating how we can get involved with that. That might unintentionally be a really nice transition into the study that you did, because you did look at multiple aspects of music sure. making and how different practice strategies or approaches might yeah. affect those things. Yeah. I wonder if you could give us kind of a like an overview of what the study was, what you were looking for. Yeah. It actually goes back to uh, when I met you the first time in 2014, and you were exposing me to all of this great research that had surfaced about uh, practicing and how we can get more efficient practicing. So I started to read a lot of those studies, and, and one thing I realized was that when it comes to behavioral studies, there was very few with musicians. And after having done the study, I realized why, because it's very complex and it's very, it's difficult to make those studies with real people. But 
I found there was a need for maybe exploring this further. So we got a grant and we uh, we did this study where we had 50 academy levels trumpet players from some of the, you might say, the most elite schools in Germany, in Switzerland and so on. And we tried to see what happened when there was side reading something and practicing with different strategies. So we would record them when they were side reading and then we'd practice different strategies and then we'd record them again. And then we had an expert jury who would analyze the pre and post recordings without knowing who it was, was the pre or post and what strategies had they practiced. And the strategies we did was physical practice. So you practice it about three minutes from actually playing it through three times. And the other one was auditory or, or you might say mental practice where you are imagining playing it both motor imagery but also auditory imagery and then there was one strategy that was singing it and then there was a strategy that was combination of physical practice mental imagery and singing and the last one was a control condition where they were just reading an unrelated article for the same amount of time and then when we got all this data put together with expert jury that was listening to 500 audio files and, and analyzing how many right notes did they play and rhythms, intonation, sound quality and musical expression. So there's a lot of data that came out of that. And the general idea was that physical practice is good, works really well. But we saw that the combination of singing, physical practice and imagery was as good uh, in terms of getting the right notes as physical practice. So that's basically one third of physical practice when you do the combination was as good in getting the right notes. And then, which was a surprise for us when we had gotten the, the estimate of or, or the measurements of the musical expression where the jury felt that this was more expressive musically, actually the combined strategy came out better than physical practice. That was uh, exceeding our expectation that it would be like that. And then we also had a questionnaire where we asked them about musical upbringing and how much they practiced every day and so on. Had they learned solfege? Did they do random practice as opposed to block practice? And what came out of that was that the students who had learned solfege, solmization, do, re, mi, fa, sol, ti, do, they got more out of the practice time than the ones who didn't. And the ones who were used and familiar with the random practice strategies, they were also more efficient in learning than the other students. Quite interesting. And when people were starting to play, that means were the early starters, like five years or seven years or ten, that didn't seem to make that much difference. There was no significant results there. Also, we couldn't see any uh, advantage in how much people practiced how much they practiced when they were young or how much they practice now and so on. It didn't make any significant uh, differences, both in terms of how they evolved in the study itself, but also the level they had when they were involved, which was based on, of course, all the lives and, and so on. So, so it's interesting that it's not the amount of practice that seems to make the difference. Yeah, so there were three things about this study that stood out to me that I thought were really intriguing, and and you mentioned all of them. You know, but one of them was in the same exact amount of practice that they were allotted for these etudes, 
the group that only practiced it once physically, but then had a, a repetition of singing it and a repetition of mental imagery of it, they were just as effective in playing the right notes as the group that did three repetitions of practice. But the added benefit is, so above and beyond the notes, they also just played more expressively from yeah. a much earlier point in their yeah. practice development. Because like you said, I mean, they're just sight reading it once, and then they have three minutes of practice, and then they're running it again. Yes. There's not a, a huge amount of time to really get this into muscle memory and be familiar with it. But already, very early stages, the earliest stages of practicing that they've done, they're already playing more expressively. I mean, I can kind of guess at it, but I'm wondering if there might be some unique benefits of inflection or expression being embedded into one's playing that much earlier in the process of learning something. Yes, absolutely. I uh, I agree with that. And, and I think one of the theories we had, which is in, in the discussion in, in the paper, is that when you early on start to vocalize, you not just get maybe better control over the playing technically, as we talked about before, important for brass players to hear the notes that we are going to play because we have to tell the lips what to do. But also we might get more expressive when we are singing. And then there was another study we were referring to where they had singers in an fMRI scanner while they were imagining singing an Italian aria and when they were actually singing it in the scanner and they could see the difference was that when they were imagining it, they actually had more emotional centers of the brain involved. So it seems like when we are not physically playing and have to check out, does this feel right? Does it sound good and analyze and all this, but just imagining the best result, we tend to get more emotionally. And I, I kind of feel like that when I do mental practice. If I have a little section of a beautiful piece and I just sit and hear it all auditorily and get so involved in how beautiful that music could be. And it's just in my head, nothing is happening. There's not a sound in the room or anything. I tend to often to get more involved in the music and, and feel it somehow more, feeling more expressive basically. And it's interesting how that FMRI study with the singers showed that. And that might be one of the reasons why it comes out as being more expressive when we have gone through the combined strategy. Having said that, we had that one condition where they were just singing, and we also had one where they were just imagining, and that didn't come out so successful. Uh, we couldn't see a significant result from that. So it seems to be something of combination that works very well. And I just want to see that actually corroborates uh, earlier studies of uh, mental practice and so on, that combination of physical and mental practice seems to be the most efficient. Right, we can't get away from the instrument entirely. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Again, maybe thinking too much about some of this, but I have to imagine that the order in which you arranged the combined practice was deliberate, where if I understood the study correctly, they sight read first. Mm -hmm. It's like a 50 second on average chunk of music, I think the paper said. Yeah. And then the next thing that they do in the combined condition is they sing it, whether they're singing or solfaging, uh, they're vocalizing it. And then they have another physical practice in between, and then they have the mental practice, and then they play it again for the test to see if there's been improvement. Yeah. Am I correct in assuming that there's a reason why the physical repetition was in between? That was to make sure that muscle fatigue wouldn't be involved so much. So, so 
if we had two times the sight reading and the first run through in the practice, if those were both physical practice, it might have an influence on how tired they would get. So that was one thing we considered, yes. Got it. Because that to me sort of links to the the other perhaps surprise finding in the study, which is that when you surveyed the participants and asked to what degree is random practice a normal feature in your everyday preparation and yeah. relative to blocked practice and so yeah. forth, I think you found that the folks who did more random practice in their everyday practicing yes. improved more than the folks who hadn't done that sort of practice in right. a typically in a typical practice day. Yeah. And so that seemed very cool to me as well. And and the way in which the combined condition was organized was essentially a very small form of random or interleaf practice. Exactly. And, we also mentioned this in the article. I, we I didn't think of that in the beginning, but when we were starting uh, to analyze the results, and so it dawned on me that it actually is, is a little form of, of random practice, and it might be one of the reasons why it's so efficient. Probably this is a good place to say a little bit about what random versus block practice was. Do you want to say a little bit about... Well, it's something I something I initially learned from you, but completely changed the way I approach practicing because it, I think at the time when we met, I had done 35 years of block practice, which seemed right and which I think a lot of people were doing in my generation. You do, you want to have structural practice, so you do half an hour of scales, then you do half an hour of triple tonguing, and then you might do half an hour of the heightened trumpet concerto and so on. So it's like structured, you do one thing and you really get into that and then you change to something else. And then you taught me about random practice where you do five minutes of of scales maybe, and then five minutes of triple tongue, then five minutes of heightened trumpet concert, then you go back and you do another five minutes of scales, another five minutes of triple tongue, another five minutes of heightened trumpet concert. So basically in terms of how, how much time you get into practice and the different things, it could be exactly the same, but you just distribute in a very different way. And as you mentioned back then, all research, whether it's in academics or sports or music is pointing very strongly towards random practice as being the most efficient in learning. I wonder if I can actually ask you some more about how that's changed things for you, because given that I don't practice anymore, like my kind of <laughs> yeah. understanding of some of these things stops yeah. at a certain point yeah. because I don't have the day-to-day -day application of it. And so I need to pick other musicians' brains to find out well, sure. how have they then apply this. Because obviously it's, it's not this rigid thing where it has to be five-minute increments and it has to be a certain number of sets. And it's quite flexible and it depends yeah. on what stage of learning you are with something and how close you are maybe to performance and if you're changing technical things that underlie. I mean, I wonder if you could share a little bit about how this is been something that you've integrated into your own practicing or how your students have maybe taken it and run with it in different ways? Um, I think one of the most important things with it is that the brain doesn't get bored because we're changing all the time. And I think the right word for it has uh, high contextual interference. So when we are changing often, we have to involve more mental resources in order to digest or in order to do what it is we're supposed to do and apparently that is making us learn more efficiently than uh, if, if we are just doing the same thing over and over uh, in a certain amount of time. 
So that changed a lot. That would change a lot and also the mental practice. And what I thought at a certain point was that how can we get all of these things in a good ordered manner when we practice so it's not too messy? So I actually came up with a strategy I think is very efficient where we cover many of these aspects, both the singing, the mental imagery, solface and so on. I think it's very efficient. It's one of the most efficient ways of practicing that I know of. I call it the four-step process. So in the four-step process, we take a chunk of music. Let's say it could be two lines. It depends on how difficult it is and so on. But a little chunk of music. And then first, I would sing it. And preferable, sing it with uh, solmization, solface, with the name Storomi Fasoliti Do. There's some reasons for that. We can come back to that. And while I'm singing at the same time, I'm pressing down my left hand, valves with my left hand. And um, that's a little bit more complicated than doing with the right hand, which is a normal for a trumpet player. I can touch a little bit why it's important. It seems like in our working memory, a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is very much to do with working memory and attention and so on, gets much more involved when we are doing unfamiliar left-hand practice. The contralateral hand, pianists can do it also. I know they do it also. And the same thing happens when we do solfaits. That had scanning studies showing that when people are singing they get also more of this dorsolateral prefrontal cortex involved as opposed to when they just sing la-la-la or, or, or something like that. So when I'm singing solface at the same time, pressing down the valves with my left hand, it's very strong programming of this particular music. Then the next step would be the same music and now mental imagery. So I will imagine very strongly how it should sound, the auditory imagery, and also at the same time, the motor imagery. I, I will imagine how are my lips feeling when they do this? Can I feel the wind? Can I feel the fingers pressing down? And all aspects of playing the instrument. The third step would be what we call dynamic motor imagery, which is mixing some of the uh, mental things with the physical practice. And that is, I'm taking up the instrument and I am blowing into it wind patterns of the music, the rhythm of the music. I'm blowing into the instrument at the same time. I'm pressing down the valve now with the correct hand, my right hand. And while I'm doing it, I'm hearing the intended music very clearly in my brain with the best sound, either my own voice or uh, imagine myself playing the best or uh, some performer that I like playing the instrument and so on. So that's are the three first steps. And then the fourth step is actually physical playing it. Then I often get the question, but that's only 25% of the time where you are actually playing. Is that enough for building endurance? And I have a, a, a little um, story about that. I had, a, I had a student who was doing a bachelor thesis on mental practice and she was a Swiss student and she was interested in what athletes were doing so she wrote a letter to Roger Federer the tennis champion and asked if he could have an interview with him and he agreed to do that and had a meeting with him and in his preparation for the big tournament he's doing 25% physical practice and 75% mental practice of course they are concerned with not getting injuries. 
because then you might miss US Open or the Olympics or whatever. And I think there's a lot of uh, to learn from that for musicians. There's been other studies. Uh, there's a thinker study, one of the earlier motor images studies, Ranga Taran, I think his name is. It's mentioned in the paper where they had people uh, sitting around for 12 weeks, either imagining moving the little finger or actually training doing it. And then they had a little device that measured uh, the strength they were doing that with. And after the 12 weeks, they could see that the ones who had done the physical practice of, of moving the finger, they had gained in strength on the little finger of, I think it was 53% or something like that. And the ones who had been imagining it, not actually moved, they had a gain in strength of 40%. So they got almost as good when just sitting thinking about it. And then the funny thing was, then they started to, they measured the hypertrophy in the finger, that is the, the building up of muscles, basically how much muscle fibers had been changing. And, and the physical group had an increase of 8% more muscle mass in the little finger of the muscles moving it, where the mental group didn't have any. But still, they were able to perform with 40% increased strength. So let's say something about the brain that the, the electronic action potential with its electronic signal going from the brain out to the muscles can change strength with myelination, this uh, substance that is making everything go stronger and moving more precise and so on. So it, it, it's been such an eye-opener for me in how we function. Most of what we do is happening in the brain and the muscles are just more or less responding to the message they get from, from the brain. Of course, there is strength involved, and that's probably why we see the combined practice come out as being more efficient than just me, uh, mental practice. I love processes, right? And so I love that there's <laughs> a very structured and clear and well-reasoned process for going through things in this sort of sure. way. I'm curious, like, what comes next? I mean, do you then look at the next two lines and then the next two lines? I mean, at some point, do you combine them or chunk them together? Yeah, that would be, you know, normally the way would be that if I go very random practice after those couple of lines I've practiced there, I would go to something completely different. Maybe different piece, maybe different uh, etude, or I'd go to a different technical skill that I want to practice and so on. But basically, I'm just layering, taking these chunks of music and going through these four-step practice. Basically, all of those, in terms of the brain learning this particular music and the motor systems that are involved in that, that's basically having done it four times. And I think that's often enough for that day, for that particular passage. And then you go to something different. And then you get this experience as you have done that for a while, that you start to know the music the first time you play through. And in each of those steps, I'm assuming it's not just where you sing it through once or imagine through once or play it once, but maybe you slow things down or you speed things up or do rhythms or yes. troubleshoot specific notes or moments or intervals Absolutely. or something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's just the kind of general order of the modality maybe of the way in which you're rehearsing or practicing or learning that bit of music yeah. shifts from one to another. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes with the four-step process, when I sing it, solfege left hand, it will be one rhythm. Then when I imagine it, it's a different rhythm. When I'm blowing air through the trumpet and pressing down the valves, 
it's a third rhythm or a third something else uh, that I change. It could even be transposition. I play a different key or something. And then when the target one, the fourth one, is the one how it's supposed to be, the, the final mm. result. But the three steps before could be very different. So, so we apply varied practice also. Is this mostly for learning new music or is there a degree of this even with music that you've learned quite well already and you're preparing for performance? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think it's mainly for learning new music, but of course we all know that you have certain pieces, like some excerpts, some concertos that you have learned maybe pretty early, so you already have some knowledge of it. But often as we evolve, as, an, as students evolve, they get better and so on. And when they revisit an old piece, I think there's a lot of learning that piece again uh, to get good new habits. Of course, there's some transfer effect from having done all kinds of other playing and issues and stuff that makes different technical aspects easier and so on. But I think there's a lot of relearning a piece and trying to apply the hopefully better playing that we have accomplished over the years into an old piece. So I even there would do the, the four-step practice, yes. And as you get closer to performance or an audition or something along those lines, how do things shift? Like, like what is the process of becoming increasingly prepared for those unique demands of an audition or performance? Yeah, everything I've talked about so far is practice, practicing, learning stuff. But we also need to practice performance. So then when things have been learned and you've been doing this and you kind of start to know the piece, I think it's important that we get into practice performing it. So we will put up the tape recorder, we'll get some people into the room, listen, and then you play through the whole piece no matter what. So even if you're not feeling particularly good and your adrenaline is, is pumping and you get maybe a little bit shaky and so on, you are still practicing that Maybe you can even do simulation practice where you get the heart rate up. I remember you and me, we did the wall sits, which was funny for me to get uh, deliberately trying to raise the adrenaline. I never did that before. I always tried to fight adrenaline. And then I realized, actually, we can, go, we can play well when adrenaline is, is flowing if we are getting used to it, if it's not so scary. And uh, that's part of practice and performance that you can play with. You can play through even when you're nervous. You know, again, not having a brass mind in my head. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask, are there any things that you would have liked to have addressed or that I should have asked that I didn't know or think to ask? Um, I mean, we were talking about brass players and how it's important they sing, that they conceive the music. And I, for many years, I thought that was unique to brass players simply because we're the only instrument beside vocalists with uh, making the initial vibration with part of our own anatomy. Everybody else is, is plucking a string or blowing a wooden reed that vibrates or pressing down a key or something like this. But we're actually vibrating lips very similar to what a vocalist is doing. But going through the literature, seeing what different instrumentalists are doing, you see that also with, with uh, pianists, uh, string players, when they put them in the scanner, and that's a very strong aspect of having a, an auditory 
what you might say focus when you are playing it's not just the mechanics for for those instruments uh, either of course and of course you listen to glenn gould you listen to keith jarrett they're actually actively singing while they're playing so i'm sure you have that when you played the violin that you really had a strong idea about how do you want to sound when you play so at the end of the day ear training teachers should feel happy about the work that they're doing even if sometimes students don't Maybe Absolutely. appreciate that class as much as they could. Yeah, and, and uh, it seems to, I think so, in some schools it's even on the way out, but what we could see here was the ones who had been doing solfege that did better than the ones who didn't. And singing with Dora Mi Fa Sol Ti Do, why is that so good? But it, it seems like the brain is putting up links between saying a particular syllable like Do and the pitch of that so it becomes a conditioned reflex and after a while when we when we start singing with uh, using solmization using solfege the syllables it gets easier to get the right notes and it's so beneficial when we are playing a, a musical instrument you can get the full transcript of this week's chat as well as a link to the study we discussed in this episode at bulletproofmusician.com blog also, I wanted to give you a quick heads up that next weekend is the annual Beyond Practicing 2 for 1 event. In case you're new to the podcast, Beyond Practicing is the online home study version of the psychological skills courses that I teach at Juilliard. And the 2 for 1 event is where you receive a second bonus account at no additional cost when you sign up. And why would you need a second account? Well, whether it's going to the gym, playing tennis, or going vegan, Having a training buddy can not just be a lot of fun, but help a ton with the learning process. And with a second bonus account that you can gift to a friend or colleague, you and your training buddy can work through the course together, comparing notes, supporting and coaching each other as you progress through the various exercises and techniques. So if your practicing has been feeling a little stale, or you've been wanting to perform more consistently at the upper edges of your ability, but haven't been sure exactly what adjustments to make to your practice and performance preparation, next weekend might be the perfect time to start exploring some of the mental skills and practice techniques that can help you get there. To learn more about Beyond Practicing and the holiday two-for-one offer, go to bulletproofmusician.com slash beyondpracticing.com.